You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. We want you to demand more from your money, so start by knowing what you own and what you owe. We'll help you take the next step at fidelity.com slash now. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Her Money. It's Jean Chatsky. We are here in our studio in Manhattan. And how many of you are ready to take your side gig to the next level? How many of you are ready to just take it hardcore, turn it into a full-time gig? We are here with help. Allie Brown, entrepreneurship coach who has been dubbed the entrepreneurial guru for women. She's one of Forbes' women to watch, is here with me in the studio. And over the last 15 years, she has helped nurture the businesses of many seven, even eight-figure revenue online thought leaders that you see thriving Today, she's also an angel investor with a special interest in women-led ventures, and she's here in New York. Allie, welcome. I can't believe I'm sitting across from Jean Chatsky. Oh, please. Oh, my God. I'm just oh, girl crushing. Please. I'm girl crushing because <laughs> I've watched you on the Today Show for years. So. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. And thank you for thank you for coming in. I'm excited because I am looking for a little bit of a coaching session here. Oh, and really? I think a lot <laughs> No, I am. And I think I think a lot of our listeners are too. You know, we all have these or many of us, whether we're in a job or whether we're running our own businesses, the thought that we could zest it up a bit, that we could supercharge it, that that we're not making the most of it. I, it definitely bothers me from time to time, and I'm, I'm sure it bothers some of them, too. <laughs> yeah. You know what's funny? Today, we went right by my last job. Where? It is. The building's gone, so I couldn't. It was on 36th, I think, and 6th Avenue. And I was with my husband, Brett, and I said, I got to go down the street and just look. And the building's not there. But some of the things are. They're still like the same little Middle Eastern coffee shop. Yeah. And a few little things you remember from 20 years ago. And, um, I mean, that's where I walked out the door that last day and made that decision. Well, let's get there by learning a little bit about what was happening in mm. your life then. Before you set off to become an entrepreneur and then to coach entrepreneurs, what was going on? Well, probably like some of you listening, what happened for me is I just, I, I kept going from job to job and thinking there was something wrong with me, but I was really just in that kind of place of being unemployable. I always wanted to change things. And by the way, your bosses don't always like that, especially in small <laughs> business. I was like, we could do this better. We could do that better. And they're like, just sit down work on the newsletter. That's why we hired you. And um, what shifted for me was my awareness in seeing these freelancers. I'd never heard of freelancers. And if, if you're in the ad world or you're or in any company these days, it's so prevalent. There's people who come and go in their own schedules. Right. And then you find out they're making more money. And this guy pulled me aside. He said, you know, you could probably do what you're doing, but make more money for it. And, you know, these agencies hire people like you. I was doing copywriting. And so, okay, I don't, I don't recommend this, but really within two months, I was so excited. And I knew I was pretty good at what I did. And I thought I kind of had nothing to lose because, you know, it's your 20s, too. Right. I had no kids, no pets, no mortgage, <laughs> you know, a little fifth floor walk up down in the village. And I said, I'm going to try this. 
And I literally started knocking door to door on agencies and getting little projects. That's how my first thing got going. Was there a breaking point where you realized like, oh, my God, I cannot do this for these people? Um, at the job? Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was when I realized I was good. And I think women have that moment when the client calls you and says, this has been fantastic. We've never gotten this kind of work from this agency before. And in fact, I share this very rarely, but like it was about six months after I left, that client was a big health system in New Jersey, found my number, called me. I didn't have a non-compete. These guys weren't even that smart, this company. And she, <laughs> she said, now that you're gone, we have no reason to stay with this little ad agency. We want to hire you freelance for this project. And I said, you know what? I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be all right. That was like a a project that would at least pay the rent for the year and cover some expenses. You know, I had that moment, too. And it didn't become clear for me until you just said it. But when I was leaving or thinking about leaving Smart Money Magazine to go to Money Magazine for oh, You were an editor, too, right? I was or, a writer. Okay. For But I was going for a significant raise and some more freedom, flex time. And I was nervous about um, my stint on the Today Show because I'd been working for the Today Show at that point for, I don't know, three, four years. And I, I went in to talk to the producers and they were like, we don't care about the magazine. We're going with you. Hmm. And that made me – it made me know my value. I think oh, kind of. You I thought did, that was your cred. Like, yeah. I get it. And like, then the, like, I thought oh, no. the magazine was my cred. Uh, and it turned out I was my cred. Gene, it's Gene Chatsky is the cred. So, but that was that was one of the first times I realized that. Yeah, I think every woman woman has a, a moment they know their worth, don't they? Mm-hmm. And that 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 was a moment. It was a turning point. So, were you prepared financially when you walked out the door? Oh no. Do, by the way, do not listen to me on this show for financial advice. <laughs> <laughs> When you were starting a business, um, no, I. But you know what? With my the way I've always been, and I have to say, with some women, what I've observed, and again, I do not recommend this. Talk with your financial planner. Talk with Jean Chatsky. But when when their back is against the wall, is when they will be the most courageous. And I still see that sometimes to this day, even women with their bigger places in their business, when they have to do it, when they have no other choice, is when they do it, and they do it big, and they do it bold. And so for me, um, it's been a faith walk, and money has always been kind of this magical mystery tour that I never quite felt prepared for for so many years. I mean, you were broke when you walked out the door. Flat broke. Flat broke. There was one night I couldn't take a $20 bill out. And and I, I I didn't share that story before until so many women said, thank you for sharing that because we don't know there are those moments. And I said, those are the moments everyone else stops. And I decided to keep going because I knew it would be okay. I just kept thinking, it's going to be okay. I'll go to the little Asian market on the corner and get a salad or something. I'll be okay. You know, I'm not going to die. I'm not going to be homeless. I'm going to figure this out. And we forget that that is what entrepreneurship is like. It's every day waking up and making the decision that I'm going to make this work. How did you get from not being able to pull a 20 out of the ATM to having that first client? Mm. Um, well, I will say I started moonlighting at the agency. Mm-hmm. And and do they still call it that even? Yeah, <laughs> I, I think I they call so. it a side gig. Yeah, I mean, because I got so excited about the potential that I started, I went to the, the bookstore. Barnes, at least there's a Barnes & Noble still in the city. It's nice to see that. I thought they were all gone. 
um, got some books. I got one or two little projects. I joined a breakfast group and went in there, not talking about my job, but talking about my business. I was there as a business owner. I got some little projects. I got a brochure from a funeral home. I did a sales letter for a little jeweler, like $500, $1,000, just here and there, and pieced it together. And I think there's, um, there's a lot to be said for that I got used to talking to people and talking about what I did. What's interesting now to observe with a lot of the women and doing the online businesses is I think they create all this stuff online to avoid having to go out and put on pants and talk to people. Mm. It's an interesting world. We could do a whole show on this right now, but you really need to get used to talking about what you do and the value that you bring in person. I think it's so critical. When you're talking about those women who are creating things on the Internet, who are you talking about? (laughs) The world I live in, I've mentored a lot of um, women that you may see online now that do a lot of online trainings. Maybe they're online influencers, like a lot of these women. And there's a lot of women going into, you've probably seen this coaching and, Mm -hmm. and online stuff. There's coaches everywhere now. And... I apologize partly because I helped invent this industry. And so it's it's just kind of a mess right now. And what you see is a lot of women starting a business and they think they have to create, you know, they think they need all this stuff, a website and something that people can sign up for free. And then you need to be emailing every day and you need to be on every social media platform. And they get so caught up in what they think they should have, they forget what the core part of their business is and how they're going to actually make money. That is why a business, the purpose of a business is to make money. It can have impact. It can have influence. You can do amazing things with that. But don't forget that the business, if the business does not make money, I see so many women's dreams fail because they forgot that fact. If the business doesn't make money, it's a hobby. It's true. Or charity or, yeah, something. Just call it something else. Call it something. But it, it ain't a business. When you first started out and the way you transitioned into coaching is that you didn't find any good advisors. There was nobody giving good advice for you. So yeah. how did you how did you shift into being a mentor, being a coach, and how do you approach advice? Mm. The great thing about coaching, it's very natural for women. We love to help each other. We love giving advice. And I always loved teaching. And so the shift for me happened when I had, you know, I was doing my business and it was growing and I had especially women going tap, tap, hey, you know, how did you do that? How are you getting these clients? And what are you doing online? And they had seen that I'd actually started doing some stuff online. I, I wrote an ebook and was selling an ebook on how to publish newsletters. Anything I would do in the business, I would just turn around and, and teach it. And um, when people start asking you more about what you do and wanting some advice around that, think about creating something to teach them that or, or work with them on that. For, for many of us, and myself included, it started with a lot of how-to. And then as I became more wise, I added a lot more advice and wisdom. And now my coaching is much more advisory than, than how-to. I run a, a group of women um, that meet four times a year. Uh, general revenues in there are a million plus. So they're at a different level. And they come in there to have these conversations with each other and talk about the things they can't talk about outside that room. We do a mailbag segment, as I think you know, later in the show. And we've got a question from a listener coming up about the fact that she's doing incredibly well, um, that she and, – and she feels bad about that. She feels embarrassed. She feels like she kind of has to hide her wealth. Do you ever experience mm. that with your clients? Yes, because it's – they often, you know, we sometimes complain we have no one to share with when things are down. Women, when they get to a certain level, have no one to share their success with. And it's incredibly lonely. 
And, um, you know, my husband's Australian, and they have something they call tall poppy syndrome. Yes. I don't know if you've heard of that. Yeah. And it's becoming more prevalent here. Mm-hmm. But as you rise and you grow taller and you stand out more, it's uncomfortable. And actually, some sometimes it's in our heads, but sometimes people around us will be uncomfortable with that. And it's very important. You know, you love your friends, love your family, but you will need to find new circles. You will need to find new people. Um, I have an incredible group of friends and people around me now that I did not have even five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. So make a consistent effort to seek out especially women who are successful and have the kind of lives you admire too. If, if they have families or seem very balanced and holistic, you know, you really do have to look for them though because there are fewer of us. It's less than 2% of all women business owners hit seven figures. I want to get to some more tangible advice for our listeners. But before we do that, I just want to remind everybody that this conversation is being brought to you by Fidelity Investments. What if you could demand more from your money? What if you could make your savings work as hard as you do? And clearly we know from talking to Allie that we are working very hard. What if all of that helped you reach your financial goals faster? It starts with a financial checkup. It starts with a real understanding of what you own and what you owe, as well as what you want to do with it. And from there, the folks at Fidelity can work with you to help you evaluate your investment options, different ways to grow your savings. You can get started today at fidelity.com slash demand more now. We are talking with Allie Brown, entrepreneurship coach. So whether you're a woman who wants to grow a business or whether you want to grow yourself from within the context of a company, how do you start to become that tall poppy? Mm. Can you give me more context on that? Like, Sure. I mean, I, I think no matter what industry we're in these days, it feels like we've got a ton of competition. There are a lot of people who want to do what we do. Mm. You send out your resume. It gets ghosted time after time again. There are people who, I mean, you just said the very sad statistics on the number of women who are seven-figure earners, yeah. the sad statistics on the number of women who are CEOs of big companies, on the boards of big companies, you know, making it work. You want to, you have an idea. You want to become one of those people. How do you position yourself? Mm, well, from in the, from the business perspective, we call it creating your own category and becoming a category of one. What's that so mean? So very often, you know, when we go into an industry, and I'll give the business context first, and maybe you can help me with the, sure. the company context, is that when you're starting a business, you often, you know, we look around us to everyone else going, well, what are they doing? That's successful. Okay, here's how we do things. I'm going to go do this. The problem is you get into this trap of normalcy. Even if you're successful, you're trapped in the same model everyone else is, and suddenly you can blend in. And it's happened to me sometimes when I've not watched the industry too much, and I'm just busy doing good stuff and doing my work. And actually, that's probably not dissimilar to being at a company. You've got your nose down, and you're doing a lot of great work, and you look up, and you're like, wait, I should be over there. I should be up here. I should be in the corner office. I should have this type of um, position. And you have to always be looking around, seeing what's going on, not to get obsessive with it, because sometimes we do, (laughs) you know, get more neurotic and watching everybody, what they're doing, but to decide that, okay, I see the landscape here, and here's something I do really well that no one else does, or here's something I I know I can contribute that could be valuable. Here's something I can bring that may be unique. And often, it may be something that you take for granted, you know, like a talent or skill that we, we take for granted and don't realize how valuable that could be. You're talking about your superpower. 
Okay, I like that. Right? Yeah, your yeah. Your superpower yeah. or your personal genius. That's yes. what you call it, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you figure out what that is if it's something that has been so routine to you that you don't even notice it? Mm. It takes a lot of awareness. It takes a shift in awareness. For my clients, what I have them do often is an exercise that they will go through everything. And I'm really condensing this. This is like a longer conversation. But, you know, getting it into a few statements and working toward those and realizing, you know, what are those things that I go into this zone, and when I do, I lose track of time. I love what I'm doing. I'm not paying attention to the people around me. Like, I really do love those things, and I feel extremely confident in them if if I don't overthink it. That's a good place to start. You also talk about something called excellence burnout. Can you explain that? This is interesting, and I want to give credit to, there's a, a great book that I read years ago, and it's called The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks. And it's a very simple read. And when I read it first, maybe 15 years ago, did nothing for me. I picked it up again about seven years ago, and I cried. I cried when I read this book because he talks about how we get to a point. Look, those of us who are successful get to a point often that we're doing what we're excellent at. And it's maybe what we could do all day, and we think that's what our genius may be. But often there's some an untapped higher level that we need to get to. And there's a few signs to look for. I recommend you read the book if you're interested. But one of the signs is that, you know, you're just starting to get a little bored, but you may not want to mess with things if the business is working or the job's working. You may be feeling almost um, like subconsciously you're starting to self-sabotage things because you know there's a direction you should be moving in. It's a broad concept, but it's spot on for so many women I work with, especially when they're success-driven. They may be at a position in a company, for example, and know deep down, I'm totally making this up, but they have the best brownies in the world. Right. And they knew, like, the brownies are their genius. And if they just made a leap, they somehow knew it would all work out. They somehow knew it would be okay, but they stay in that job or they stay in that other business. And literally, things can start happening to push you that direction. The universe will start giving you signs. Fascinating. As far as your current roster of clients, and I know you you know, you work with many people. It changes all the time. What are the strategies that you're recommending most that are working right now? Typically, okay, when when women come to me, they've typically, they've broken or they're close to breaking seven figures or plus. But, but these, these principles I'm going to share can apply to anybody. First of all, we look at everything they're doing in, in their current business and look at applying something that's been around a long time. It's called Pareto's Principle or the 80-20 rule, mm-hmm. right? And it's generally that 20% of your efforts will be generating 80% of your results. So look at the business. Look and you at, want that. Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> look at the portion of your business that's going to be doing the most. And then look at what's maybe not, you know, not working for you. And they have such a hard time with this, though, because they may be attached to some things that are working. Well, I think about what you said when we first started talking about social media, which is the thing that feels like it takes up so much time. And I'm never sure. I love interacting with people. I love knowing that my community is there. But from a business perspective, I'm never sure of whether there's added value. Is there a true ROI? I love it and I hate it too. I yeah. hate it. We'll post. I love posting this, so we'll post this. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's those things and really taking like an audit of your business. And, and I guess this could be also applied to your career or your position. You know, what are those things you're doing that are so valuable and so powerful that if your 
position or your business focused on those things, it would be like pedal to the metal. But we have such a hard time letting some other things go. And and a quick example, I had a client who is a, a fitness coach, and she came in with actually two different companies. And they were both doing about a million. And we were looking at the what was most headaches. She was paying the most team. The clients were paying the butt. I mean, just every, it was this long list on the board. I said, well, what do you think we should do? Often it's just me going that. Right. (laughs) Saying that, you know. And uh, it took a few months, but she ramped down that business. We streamlined the other business. That business has gone to what this year will be a $20 million company. That's within less than three years. So quick example, but when, it's an extreme example, but when you get that clear on what's working and then deciding to put all your resources toward that, it's an incredibly hard decision, though, for some people. Um, It depends what else is going on. Maybe their family's involved in a part of the company or they have friends or, you know, how deep these things Mm -hmm. can go and how we make it. Amazing advice, and you are a wealth of information. Where can we get more of it? AllieBrown.com. I'm also active. I would say Instagram's where I hang out the most, um, which is Allie Brown Official. Right, Erica? My assistant's okay. <laughs> my assistant's in there. I'm like, where are we hanging out these where days? Where are we? Um, let me ask my millennial. Um, and so I'd love to interact with everyone. I also have a show that you've been on yes. just a few episodes ago. Mm-hmm. We just had you on, which yeah. was a fantastic conversation. It's Glambition Radio. So listen to the interview I did with Jean if you haven't heard it. And the book is just fantastic. Oh, Thanks thank again you. for coming out with that. It's it's such a wealth of advice for all the women who read it. I thank you so much for saying that. And thank you for coming into our studio. I hope that you will come back again soon. This has been great. Thanks. And we'll be right back with Kelly and your mailbag. And Kelly is joining me in the studio with our mailbag. Hey, yes. Kel. Hello. How are you? I am. I'm good. I'm just having you know one what? of those days. We don't always have to be okay. Ooh. You're getting very, <laughs> you're getting very serious. <laughs> We're fine. Everything's fine. Yeah. <laughs> let's, okay. let's answer some questions. Okay. First. One from KL. I'm without work over 11 years. I have a home that is paid off, so my bills are minimal. I have around 6000 left before I have to start to dip into my long-term savings. I'm in the process of selling my home, and I will have a good amount for living expenses. Can you tell me what a reasonable budget should look like for me? I am paying for storage units at the moment, which I won't have once I move into this larger property. And I'm 64 and a half years of age, but my Social Security is quite low. I want to wait until I reach 65. I can't give you numbers because I don't have your numbers. And even if I had your numbers, the best way to budget is to do it backwards. And when I say that, what I mean is if you track for a month where all of your money is going, then you can make sure that you're living within your means and that you're not overspending on one category versus another. What I don't want you to do is to fall into debt. What I don't want you to do is have to dip into retirement savings that you are counting on to last you for 30 years, because that's how you break a budget. So that's what I think I'd like to ask you to do. For the next month, go ahead and track all of your spending. Go ahead and write everything down. Even better, put it into a computer and then send it to us. And then we can go through it because we'll be able to tell based on how much money you'll have coming in 
from Social Security, how much you've got from your long-term savings, and what you expect to need to live on over time for things like health care and things like housing and things like transportation and food will be able to tell what's manageable. But absent the numbers, it's, it's really impossible for me to answer that question. So you do a little homework, you get back to us, mm-hmm. and we'll go through it with you. Sounds good. Now one from Robin. At what age should a young adult get their first credit card? Our 23-year-old son will be graduating from college soon, and he secured a job working at a restaurant. He has use of our credit card and has not needed to use it often because he's always at least had a part-time job and his living expenses have been taken care of. Now that he will be leaving college, he will be on his own with regards to food, housing, utilities, etc. I don't think he should rush into getting a credit card until he's lived on his own for a while and has had a chance to settle into his new job. My husband disagrees. Please help us sort this out. I'm with your husband. Yep. I think he needs a credit card because having a credit card is the way to build credit. And I even worry that he won't be able to rent an apartment on his own without a cosigner if he doesn't have any credit built. You didn't say whether he was on your credit card as an authorized user. If he is, and if the credit card is reporting to the credit bureaus on his behalf, he may already have a decent enough credit score to qualify for a credit card on his own. But if not, I would encourage him to first try to apply for a credit card. He may or may not get accepted. If you go to a website like CardHub, They will tell you which credit cards are best for people who have not a lot of credit history, and that can give you some sense of where to apply. If he gets turned down, he should apply for a secured credit card, and that's a card where you make a deposit with the issuing bank. That deposit becomes your credit limit. You use the credit card, you pay your bills every single month, and as you do that, you build credit, and generally over 18 to 24 months, as long as you've kept your account in good standing, it will convert to a regular credit card. And again, websites like CardHub and Low Cards and NerdWallet, they all have lists of the best cards, and they're often the very same card. So, so pick one of those and just go to it, but I believe he needs a card now. Thank you for writing in, Robin. And we'll do one more from someone who would like to remain anonymous. You frequently discuss how talking about money has become a taboo topic, and we should all talk about money more with each other, with family, with coworkers, with friends, etc. My husband and I both grew up in middle-income homes, and many of our family and friends have remained in that income bracket. We, however, have done very well, and I would dare say we are one percenters. This is hard for me to type due to my almost embarrassment of this fact she has also. The point being, I don't really feel comfortable discussing money with any of my family or friends. We regularly qualify trips we take by saying, oh, we use miles and got a great deal on an Airbnb, which is sometimes true, but I say it even when it isn't true. Maybe there are two issues. One, my guilt over our financial largesse. And two, how can I talk to people about money when our situations are so different? This is an amazing question Mm -hmm. because I think often... People don't understand that it comes from both sides. The guilt, the shame, the embarrassment can come from having more than people as much as it can come from having less. Here's the thing. When we talk about money, we don't necessarily have to talk about bank account balances. Mm -hmm. We can talk about feelings about money. We can talk about 
goals. We can talk about whether we have tension in our relationships with our spouses about money. If you are uncomfortable talking to specific people about money, I would say find other people to talk to Mm -hmm. and start with your husband, Mm -hmm. right? If you and your husband have a robust, ongoing dialogue about what you want from your financial lives, that's amazing. And that's so much more than many people ever Mm -hmm. do. Talk to colleagues. You know, you've got colleagues likely who are in similar financial situations. Mm -hmm. Share as much as you're comfortable. The point is to actively stop not talking about it. Mm -hmm. And bring, if you've got children, bring your kids along in this conversation as well so that they can grow up feeling that it's okay to talk about. Mm -hmm. And not just not talking about money, but also downplaying all the wonderful things that you're able to do and enjoy with your husband in life. Like, it broke my heart to hear you downplay your vacations because you didn't want to sound like you're bragging. The fact that you wrote in with these concerns or you feel this way, like, I can't imagine a world in which you ever would be bragging or sound like you're bragging. And I think if that's a fear, you will you will know who your friends are when they don't make you feel bad about the life that you have. You're already such a considerate person that I think it's really telling if you feel like you can't express yourself in the way that is honest and true and fully representative of who you are to your, you know, your family and your friends. It breaks my heart to think. So it's just another perspective on this, too. Like, I wonder if you're putting too much pressure on yourself. Yeah, and the fact is they know. (laughs) <laughs> Probably. Yeah. No, I think they know. Maybe, like your yeah. friends, your friends and your family members, they know that you're doing well. Mm-hmm. And they probably also know that you're being disingenuous <laughs> when you downplay sure. how well you're doing. And it's okay to enjoy what you've got. Mm-hmm. You know, it's okay to enjoy the fact that not only does it allow you to live well, but it allows you to provide the life that you want to provide for your kids. It allows you to use your money to do good things in the world. Mm -hmm. That is all good. I do have to say that when I was researching women with money, Mm -hmm. I heard this. Yep. I heard it. I heard it. Women with money. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I heard it a a good amount. I wrote a lot about it. Mm -hmm. If you haven't read the book yet, um, I would encourage you to pick up a copy because there are a lot of financial therapists interviewed in the book, and we talked about this. Well, thank you so much for writing in, and I respect your modesty, but I would love for you to own it. Own it. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you very much, and thank you to everyone. You can email us questions at mailbag at hermoney.com. And while you're at the computer, take a sec and sign up for our newsletter. We publish two newsletters a week that take a look not just at what we're publishing on hermoney.com, and we're publishing great stuff there, Mm -hmm. but at what is happening in the world with your money that you need to know about on a regular basis because often the news affects what happens in our wallets, and we should be aware. Today in Thrive, you're 30 and you want to buy a home, and yet... You just can't swing it. Why is that? The Fed is pointing the finger at student loan debt, saying it's to blame for about 20% of the decline in home ownership among millennials. In 2005, 45% of heads of households aged 24 to 32 owned homes. By 2014, only 36% 
5% did. At the same time, the average student loan debt doubled. So is it possible to do both, to pay the loans and buy the house? Maybe. For that student loan debt, consider compartmentalizing. Try to refinance your debt or look into a federal payment plan that adjusts your monthly payment in line with your income so that you're able to prioritize making payments toward the home. As for that home, if you're shopping now or at least window shopping, here are a few things it takes to get a mortgage today, 10 years after the housing crash. Number one, an attractive credit score, preferably 720 or above so that you know you're going to get a good rate on a mortgage. Number two, you need to prove your income in multiple ways. During the housing bubble, it was possible to get a loan just by stating your income with no documentation. These days, both you and your lender must prove your income, assets, and debt. Number three, You won't necessarily need a 20% down payment. There are many loan programs available that will let you put down as little as 3% as long as you're willing to pay the additional costs of private mortgage insurance. And you can find more on this at hermoney.com. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Allie Brown for the great conversation. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We like knowing what you're thinking. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week. We'll be back with another great guest, and we'll talk soon.